if you will open your Bible, if you haven't already, to the book of Titus. Again, we're uh, talking a little bit about church culture, uh, or I guess better, a gospel culture. We've been saying that we want as a church to have a, a gospel culture. And uh, culture, there's what we believe. That's our doctrine. Uh, so you can find that in our doctrinal uh, statement. And then there's our way of life, the way that we talk to one another, the way that we uh, view life, our values, the the things that we get excited about, what we prioritize, what we don't prioritize, habitual ways of thinking. That's kind of our culture. And it's a, a little too small of a word, actually, uh, culture. <laughs> doesn't sound that significant. And it even sort of sounds neutral, right? Like culture. That's just my, my culture. But it is significant. Uh, it can make what we believe look beautiful, or it can make it harder for people to hear. And a lot of times it's not actually neutral. Our culture is not always neutral. Uh, sometimes maybe, uh, but a lot of times not. There are ways of thinking and talking that seem normal and nobody really looks twice, but actually are a denial of what we believe. And on the other hand, we can say it the opposite way as well. If we really believe the gospel, that should make us into a certain kind of culture. There should be ways of thinking, speaking, acting that are just normal here, that aren't normal in the world around us. It's a, a, a different culture. But it takes some work, uh, definitely. If that's going to happen, it, it takes some thought, partly because we're trained from babyhood in a culture that is based on a completely different set of beliefs. It's a little like how we learn a language or an accent even. We learn a culture. Even if we grew up in a, a Christian home, we had some advantages for sure, but you know, it's kind of like growing up in a home that speaks Mandarin while you're living in America. You're getting the gospel culture at home, hopefully, but all around you there is a culture that is based on a completely different set of beliefs that's pressuring you to conform to it, sometimes without you even realizing it. In other words, we're, we're living in this world right now where people act certain ways, talk about certain things, do certain things, and whether they know it or not, uh, whether they consciously think about it or not, so much of the way that they're thinking or acting or talking, so much of what they're doing is actually connected to a certain set of beliefs. Beliefs that sometimes are the exact opposite of the truths we've embraced as Christians. And yet this is the world we live in, the world we grew up in, and so it makes sense that we almost have to continually be going back and thinking about what we believe and how it should impact the way we live as individuals for, for sure, but also as a church, as a community. We have to work at connecting the dots. And so we began last week talking about that, gospel culture. And the question was, if we believe the gospel, what kind of church community should we be in? And last week we said we should be a needy church. One of the fundamental things that makes Christianity different from every other religion is that we believe God alone saves sinners, that we need saving and that we can't save ourselves. And believing that should impact the way we relate to God, the way we relate to others, the way we respond to problems, the way we think about solutions. In other words, our culture. 
Specifically, it should be normal to ask God for help, and it should be normal to ask others for help. There won't be a tremendous fear of failure because we already know we deserve hell, right? And the only way we're not going to hell is because God saved us. And so really, what would we be afraid of people finding out about us? Like they might find out I'm not good at talking in front of people. Look, they already know you deserve hell. It doesn't get worse than that. I don't think being bad at talking in front of people is going to make the situation much worse. And plus, God loves you. They're like, that guy's funny. He doesn't talk well in front of people. And God's like, I love them. That should impact our culture. If we're a needy church, it will be normal for us to repent of sin to one another. We'll be very patient with other people. We'll be a church that reaches out to people in need without a sense of superiority. It will make us very merciful. And I'm sure there's more, but that's where we we started. A needy church reflects a gospel culture. Now, second, and there's not a tremendous order to this, I, I wish... This is just reflecting on certain passages and the difference they should make on the way we are as a church. But, but second, a gospel culture is a hopeful culture. And hope, obviously, is a pretty broad word, I know. So let me be a little more pointed. Hopeful about the possibility of change. I want to talk today about being a group of people who believe and who act and who feel and who think like God can really change anyone. A gospel culture is a hopeful culture. Not a a naive culture, for sure, because we believe two things simultaneously, actually. And we'll talk about this. We believe in the impossibility of change and the possibility of change. So not a naive culture. There's not anyone out there who's more pessimistic about human nature than we are. We believe non-Christians are dead spiritually. And even as Christians, we believe sin is a beast, so not a naive culture. But we are a hopeful culture, and I'm I'm going to talk about why we want to be the kind of church that is confident that God really can change really messed up people through the gospel. And one of the reasons I want us to look at how the gospel gives us hope for, for change, why we believe that, is because of the fact that a lot of people don't have hope for change. A lot of people don't believe people can change at a fundamental heart level. So of course, I mean, maybe they can change their economic position, or maybe they can change externals, how they appear, but not fundamentally who they are, not their desires. It's almost like uh, you are who you are, learn to live with it in our culture. And actually, I, I probably should say that a little different, right? Because it's even more than that. Carl Truman, he's an author, and he talks about the social imaginary. And that's a funny word, but he got that from some philosopher. But basically, that's what people believe all around you without even realizing it's a belief. But it's so fundamental to the way they look at everything in the entire world that they almost think it's just the way things are. Like your next-door neighbor, he might not know who Rousseau is or have ever read a book by Rousseau. But when you talk to him about his view of the world, he's actually quoting this philosopher, Rousseau, and he doesn't even realize where he got that from. He just thinks that's how life is. And one of the core beliefs, for sure, in our culture is that deep down inside you, 
there is this really special and awesome and unique you. And the goal of life is to get that you out. So it's not just, it's not just learn to live with, with who you are, actually. In our culture, finding out and being who you actually are is the goal of life. Not changing, but being fundamentally who you are is the goal of life. And it's not easy to do that either because it's like everybody's trying to force that special you deep down in there to be something you're not, to change. And so you've got the world against you here trying to make you conform. And you've got to find a way, heroically, to, to reject all that pressure if you are going to be who you're meant to be. Which is part of why people get so angry when people talk about people changing. Unless it's changing to be who I already am deep down. So the world will celebrate that kind of change, of course, because it's not actually change. It's becoming who you feel like you are at that moment. But if anyone is calling you to say no to who you are deep down in any way at all, that's bad. And it's offensive, actually, and wrong. And you know this is one of those fundamental core beliefs because of the way people respond when you dis disagree, even in a small way. What happens is a form of excommunication. I mean, this is something people will make fun of you about. This is something people will not associate with you over. At the very least, they will look at you and talk about you as if you were outdated or naive. And so there is a lot of pressure not to believe in the possibility of change. A lot of pressure not to call people to conform to some standard outside of themselves. And I think sometimes all that pressure gets to us as Christians, honestly. And sometimes maybe without even realizing it, that's the thing. Because we know we would all come and affirm that people need to change. That's where we are a little different as, as a church. I mean, that's part of why we're here, even. We would say we believe people need to change. And we got that from our doctrine even last week. We were foolish. We were deceived. We were enslaved to sin. And so we know that the you deep down in there isn't super great. And so that, for the most part, I think is different for us as a church. But here's the thing. Even though we know people need to change, sometimes we just don't have a lot of hope or expectation that people can change because it seems so hard. And if you've been around for a while and if you've been in ministry for a while, you can even get a little cynical so you're not saying nobody can change, otherwise you wouldn't be in, in church, but you start sort of treating people like it, feeling like it, thinking like it, and sometimes even talking like it. That guy, you know that guy. End of sentence. That, that's who he is. Somebody comes into church from a bad background, we're like always looking at them with a squinty eye. Somebody did something when they were a younger believer, and then we just feel... They're always going to be that way. We don't always try ministry with certain groups of people because we think it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. People like that don't change. It even impacts parenting, honestly. And yet it doesn't always feel like that big a problem to us because at least we know they need to change. So whenever we're pressed on it, we are like, but I know, I know they need to change. <laughs> And we're kind of right, actually, about how hard it is to change. It is so hard to change. 
And I think because there's like this seed of doubt already there in our minds about whether or not it's even possible or good for people to change, we've got this pressure from our culture. And so again, we don't deny that change is possible technically, but in terms of how we live, how we think, how we act, how we speak, we aren't that much different than the people around us, really. As we think about ourselves to begin with, we sometimes look at our own lives and we settle. We settle. We don't have this great, big, grand vision of overcoming sin and becoming more godly. It's more like, I'm, you know, I'm just happy to get by. I don't like the Bible. I'm not a reader. That's just the way, my, the way I am, I guess. My, my parents were angry people. Uh, they were just always angry all the time. And so I guess it just runs in the family. I, I'm going to be an angry, angry person. And so even you ask somebody, how are you growing? How are you changing? And that almost feels like a strange question. They don't have anything. It, it, it doesn't bother them that much as long as I'm not getting worse, I guess. It's comfortable to talk about what am I learning, but not so much how am I changing. And as long as it's not getting worse and there isn't anything obvious that's embarrassing and causes problems, I'll, I'll settle with that. And then as we look at others who are different than us, sometimes we're not even motivated, really, to get involved in their lives because it just seems so impossible for them to change, which is part of what I love about Titus chapter 2, actually. And now we're here. We're almost at our, our text. But I love this passage because if there was one group of people in the ancient world that you might look to as proof that change was impossible, it would have to be the people who lived on the island of Crete. Like, if you wanted to do a documentary in the ancient world about how foolish it was for Christians to believe in change in, in Paul's day, you would do a documentary on people from Crete. Nobody thought Cretans could change. And the fact is, even Cretans didn't have a lot of hope for Cretans changing. I know we're looking at Titus chapter 2, but Paul quotes one of their prophets in chapter 1, verse 12, who said... Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And that's a bad trifecta, right? Liars, beasts, and gluttons. And what gets me, of course, is that word always. This is just how it is. People didn't have a lot of hope for Cretans changing. But as we read Titus, it's clear when it came to the church and when it came to Christians, Paul did. That's kind of one of the big points of the whole book, actually. Paul had, at some point in time, visited Crete, and he started some churches, and then he had to leave, but he left someone named Titus there with those churches he started, and one of the main things that he's calling on Titus to do is to teach the church how to live in a way that matches up with the gospel. That's Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And you remember from last week, again, not just sound doctrine, but what accords with sound doctrine, a life that matches what they believe, which means if their culture was always liars, always evil beasts, and always lazy gluttons, that Titus was going to have to get in there and help those believers change their culture, or at least their church culture. And what I want to stop and ask today is, why did Paul think that was even possible? You know, if the whole world was looking at Crete and thinking Cretans are always like that, why is it that Paul has such hope 
for a real and lasting change. Why is he so positive here? And look, I don't want you to misunderstand either because uh, Paul doesn't think it's going to be easy. There's a lot that Titus is going to have to do. And Paul knows that there's going to be all kinds of resistance. It's going to be a fight. But at the end of the day, Paul is convinced that these believers can learn to live in a way that is so different from the culture around them that, he says in verse 10, they can actually adorn or make beautiful the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, he has expectations, Paul, that Cretan believers could be transformed, truly transformed. Which sounds wonderful, of course, and what you would expect at church. And when you read it in the Bible, you agree. It's like the dream for them to go from being the kind of people the world dismisses to living the kind of life that makes people stop and notice. And yet the fact is, you take this out of the Bible, you take this out of the Bible to our life right now, to people we know, and to situations, and a lot of people aren't going to even think it's realistic or possible. Even in the church! The world, of course, we know. They're like, leave them alone. How dare you ask them to change? But the church, we're more like, well, that's a nice thought, Paul. But really, it's probably not going to happen. How can you have any hope of that? And we find Paul's answer in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For, you see that, right? That little word there, that's how he begins. For, so that's what this verse is about. Titus, get in there and teach these people how to change. All these things I just told you I want you to teach them. Teach them how to change. For. You know, it's kind of funny because I always read these verses as primarily addressed to the church at Crete, meaning that Paul is writing to encourage the church at Crete personally as to why they should obey the commands in verses 1 to 10. So like older men, younger women, younger men live this way for... But actually, if you look a little more closely, you see that even before Paul is addressing the congregation as a whole, he's talking to Titus and the leaders of the church. I mean, that's why the book is even called Titus, not Crete. And so what's happening is that he's been telling Titus, you're supposed to get in there, man, and you're supposed to help these believers live differently, which Paul knew was going to be difficult in the Cretan context. And so as Titus was getting in there and working, uh, doing this ministry of discipleship on a day-to-day -day basis, especially as an outsider in the culture. He wasn't a Cretan himself. He was a, an outsider to this culture, which had such a bad reputation, and I'm sure really was bad. Paul knew there was going to be some serious temptation for Titus to wonder, can these people actually change Paul? What am I doing here? Is it worth it? Which is why Paul pauses after giving all these instructions in verses 1 to 10, he pauses to give Titus some reasons why he could be confident change was possible. And even more than that, for believers, certain. In such a sinful world, with such sinful people, and with so much cultural pressure, what are the reasons we can be confident enough to go out there and teach the word and get involved in messy relationships with people and expect that if they're believers, they really can change? For, Paul writes, Four. Here are some reasons. And all of those reasons revolve around the grace of God. Four, verse 11, for the grace of God. 
And this is important, actually, because look, again, Paul was not naive. And so he didn't have hope that people could change because of people. You think you know people. Paul knew people. In fact, even up in verse 13 of chapter 1, after quoting that one prophet about what Cretans were like, how they were always liars and stuff like that, you know what Paul says? Verse 13, he says, this testimony is true. <laughs> They're right. So honestly, I think if you ask Paul, could Cretans by themselves change, he's going to be like, there's no way. Cretans don't change. And actually, we can go a step further than that, because I think you bring up any reason people can't change and overcome what's truly sinful. And that's important. Hear me now. What's truly sinful, because we're not talking about changing things the Bible doesn't even call sinful. The world's all concerned about you changing in areas the Bible doesn't even call sinful. We're not talking about changing what's not sinful. We're talking about changing what is sinful. You bring up a reason why people can't change what's sinful, maybe some sort of modern reason we can come up with. And I think Paul's going to be like, well, I didn't, I don't, I didn't actually have access to that information, obviously, because I'm like living in the first century. But that doesn't surprise me, because I can tell you an even bigger reason why they can't change. And that's the fact that apart from God's work in their life, they are spiritually dead. Paul knows what people are like. He knows what the Cretans are like. It's just that Paul didn't stop with what the Cretans were like or what people are like. Paul was a man with a realistic view of the sinfulness of people and a big view of the grace of God, a low view of the goodness of people and a big view of the grace of God. If, if all we did was focus on ourselves and what we could do, we would have no hope for the kind of change that Paul describes, really. We would be with everyone else. In fact, we would be more hopeless. But of course, the difference is Paul, the Bible, won't let us focus only on ourselves and what we can do. He takes us back to God and what God has done. That's the key. For the grace of God has appeared. And look, Paul's talking about a historical event here. Appeared. When he talks about the grace of God. This is something that happened. In other words, it's not just an idea for Paul. It's not just like a concept. It's a point in time in history where the creator of the world broke into what's going on into this world, in this world to demonstrate his kindness in a unique and stunning and totally undeserved way. So Paul's not just telling Titus. You have to hear this. He's not just telling Titus, you know what? God's good, and uh, I know it's hard in, in Crete, but yeah, God is good, and, and, uh, and so if you just get in there and try, I think they'll probably listen after a while and change. No, this is bigger than that. Paul's saying, get in there and disciple these people because something happened in history. Something happened. God acted in this world. The grace of God has appeared. And that moment changes everything. How? How? If we're going to become a hopeful culture, and uh, we want to become a hopeful culture, the kind of place where it's obvious, people come in here and they see, these people really believe that really messed up people 
can become different kinds of people. They really believe that. We want to become a hopeful culture. And if we're going to become a hopeful, hopeful culture, we need to see what Paul sees in the grace of God. So how? How exactly does the grace of, of God appearing give us hope? First, there's three ways. First, look at who it's for. Who did the grace of God appear for? Paul says, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. And that's like his theme statement. And then he gets specific. Bringing salvation for all people. And so it's like we're looking back with Paul at this shocking inbreaking of God's grace into the world. And we're asking, what can we learn from that event? What happened? And Paul's saying, one thing we can learn from that is that it is God who brings salvation and that he brings that salvation for all kinds of people. And of course, salvation is a pretty intense word because it means rescue. It's not just help, it's bigger. So if we look back at what God's done through Christ, it assumes, we see it assumes, there's something really wrong with absolutely all of us. Otherwise, God could have just sent instructions. But we're so broken, he had to send salvation. And that's the way that any one of us here today can change. So if we start tracing out how does change happen in anybody's life, true change, first salvation, not instructions, first salvation. There's no real hope for change apart from this salvation, which is part of what gives us hope that anyone can change because there isn't anyone out there who changes simply through his own efforts. It's always only first through this salvation that the grace of God brings, always and only. The only way anyone is going to change is if they've experienced this salvation, any, anyone. And you have to hear that because it's so easy for us, even without knowing it, to put people in categories. And it's a little sad, and I can get a little passionate about this. Uh, when, you, when you go out witnessing, you start working with a certain group of people, people will say things like, oh, you know those people. You're not going to get very far with people like that. And it's like they're talking, when they say that, it's like they're talking as if there were certain groups of people that were easier than others. Don't work with them, because they're too hard. These other people are easier. And look, whenever people say things like that, I'm just thinking, dead's dead, you know? We don't really need someone to tell us these people are really a bad kind of people, because we all were a bad kind of people. All! There's not a good kind of people to work with out there. We all need saving. You're a doctor and you go to the cemetery and you're supposed to help dead people. You don't ask, I wonder who died in a car accident and who died in their sleep. I only want to work with those who died in their sleep because they're easier. If you're a coroner, maybe. I'm guessing there are people who are easier to make look good on the outside. But we're not coroners. We're not satisfied with merely helping people look a little better. We're looking for a miracle, for salvation. And Paul is saying, God brought this salvation for all people. Emphasis on all. It's not just that he brought salvation. It's that he brought salvation for all people. What's that mean? It doesn't mean that all people are saved, of course. That would be like Paul denying everything Paul ever wrote. Instead, if we look down at the beginning of chapter 2, I think we can understand what Paul's getting at. Because in the context, before Paul talks about the grace of God bringing salvation for all people, he tells Titus he needs to talk to all these different kinds of people in the church. Men, women, rich, poor, old, young, Jew, Gentile. 
And so it's like Paul, who was a Jew, writing to Greeks, and Titus was a Gentile, actually. It's like Paul was just enjoying the fact that before he became a Christian, so many years before he was converted, he had always assumed his whole life that the Messiah was only coming for one group of people. But now in the gospel, God revealed to him that it wasn't just for the Jews, it was for Gentiles, and not just for a certain kind of Gentile either, not just for the elite or the educated or the rich or the important, you name it. The salvation God provided was for all kinds of people from all kinds of places with all kinds of different backgrounds as well. And Paul never got over that. And we can never get over that as a church. When the grace of God had appeared, it appeared bringing God-saving power for all kinds of people. And you see that in the event itself, right? If you look back at what happened when the grace of God appeared in history, we see that he went after all kinds of people. It's part of what got him into such trouble. You pick a person you wouldn't think the Messiah was coming for. Maybe a traitor, maybe a prostitute, an outcast, a demon-possessed, a leper, a murderer, and they're all surrounding Jesus, and he's having dinner with them. Which is why we don't just have hope for people from good backgrounds changing or, or people who don't really have bad habits changing or only people from educated backgrounds changing because we don't believe that God's grace appeared only for a certain kind of person. This salvation is intended for all people. Looking back to what God's done through Jesus gives us hope. Not that everybody's going to change, of course, because they need salvation. But there's a possibility reading uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning and Paul as he talks about salvation in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 he says for God who said let light shine out of darkness when did God say let light shine out of darkness he said that way back at creation so Paul's thinking about God speaking and the world coming into being that's a lot of power he goes on he says for God who said let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? The kind of power that we see in creation where God speaks and worlds come into being, that's the kind of power that was exercised in your salvation. It's supernatural. It's a miracle being saved. And we believe God can save dead people. He can raise the dead, the spiritually dead. That's first. But that's not all. We don't just look back at what the grace of God did. We also can look at what the grace of God is, is doing. God showed his grace by Jesus coming to save all kinds of people, and God shows his grace by continuing to actively train people. Paul says, verse 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. And so he's turning from this past event to the present, and he's talking about something God's grace does now. The same grace we look back that came to save all kinds of people now works to train us. So it's not just a, a past historical event, the grace of God appeared. It's a present reality, the grace of God trains. In other words, good news, God hasn't left us on our own as a church. Jesus didn't just come to die and save us. If we look at what's happening in our lives right now as believers, the grace of God 
is teaching us. Or maybe better, tutoring us, because we think of teaching like a classroom, sort of just showing up and dumping information on someone and going home. But the word that Paul uses here, training, instead is more like homeschool. Or it's even, it's even better, like in the old days, where you would hire a tutor and he would move into your house and he would devote himself to teaching your child everything they needed to know. If you're a Christian, it's like God's moved in to your house. And he's present in your life right now, showing you mercy by tutoring you in what you need to know to live a holy life. And as we go about doing ministry as a church, it is so important we don't ever forget that. Because it's easy to. God is in this thing. I don't know about you, but I would be so completely hopeless when it comes to spiritual growth if it were just you and me and the Bible and, and our problems. I would want to give up. But it's not just you and the Bible and your problem. It's you and your Bible and God. God is at work in your life. I know for me that's the only way I can pastor. Because when I'm talking to an unbeliever, I don't have any hope for them changing until God changes them. And once God changes them, saves them, I can't be pessimistic about them and their ability to change any longer if they're truly saved because God himself has committed to changing them. It might not happen on my timetable. It might not happen the way I would think it should happen. But God's in there. God's at work. You might call this the great now of the gospel. There's someone who put it like this. There's a now to the gospel. Of course, there's a then, there's a now, and then there's a then to the gospel. So there's the past then. And we're pretty good at, as Christians at looking back to the past and what the grace of God has done bringing salvation. And there's also a future then. And we're probably not quite as good at this, but sometimes we look forward to how the glory of God is going to appear to save us. But we can't forget, in the middle of these two thens, in the middle of these two great events, the past then and the future then, there's also a now to the gospel. The grace of God is at work right now to change us. God did not only save us, and God will not only save us, God is saving us. So if you're uh, uh, talking to a Christian, it's not just you talking and that person trying, it's God transforming, which is what makes us a hopeful church. This is sometimes people are like, I can't get involved in discipling somebody else. I, I, it's not a good teacher. I don't know what to say. It's not just you and them. It's not just you and them, church. It's not just you and them. If you're a Christian, they're a Christian. God's at work. Who do you think is a good teacher? God is a good teacher. And it's not that we think, okay, this is going to be so easy to change, or, and it's definitely not if we think, if we just have the right words to say to this person, you know, like there's like a magic code, boop, 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 change. Oh, I don't know the code. I'll never learn the code. It's not that. For most of us, I don't know, for most of us, I, I don't know if this ever happened to you. You sit down with someone, and they're talking to you about their problems, and you're like, wow, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Because sometimes people's problems are so complicated. And so you're looking at the person, and you're thinking to yourself, how can I help you? 
It's not because we're like super gurus and we always know the right thing to say that we're hopeful about helping people to change. Because look, the truth is we're not. And honestly, I don't trust super gurus myself because I know people's problems are way too complicated. If we were left to ourselves, there's no way we could really be of much help to people. But we're not just left to ourselves. That's the point. Yes, you're teaching. Yes, you're talking. But Paul says here in verse 12, so is God. God is training. And you know what? If a person is a believer, God is way, 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 way more committed to their transformation than you are. Do you ever think about that? That's good news. That's part of why we have hope. No matter how committed you are to another believer changing, God is more committed. In fact, while it's true God may be using you to teach them, ultimately God himself is the one who's training them. I mean, what's cool, if you look down at verse 12, is that you see the very things, basically, that Titus is supposed to speak to the believers in Crete about, in verses 1 to 10. God is already at work in the believers in Crete about. Paul's like, Titus, I want you to teach them this, and I want you to teach them this, and I want you to teach them this. And then he says, Titus, the reason I want you to teach them this, and teach them this, and teach them this is for, let me tell you why, for God is already teaching them this. The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And again, let me just keep going with this, because I know we can sometimes get so discouraged. We want to throw in the towel. And, and, and deep down, we're like, but really, can God really train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Because, like, look at the world around us. It is so bad. And sometimes we're like, it's too much. How can anyone be holy in a world like this? It almost doesn't feel possible. I remember taking my kids to like a children's movie one time. I mean, so innocuous, the children's movie. And then like the ads before the movie, I'm like, you are kidding me. You're kidding me. Just try in here. It almost doesn't feel possible. Everywhere we go, it seems like we're confronted with temptation and we're being told what to think. And, and you can start feeling scared and a little hopeless. And you're asking, is the grace of God strong enough to do what Paul says? And yet, you know what's kind of funny is that even as we're asking ourselves things like that, it's like we're forgetting that God has already done things like that. Because look at you if you're a Christian. You need to remember the miracle that's taken place in your life already. Because no, you're not in heaven yet. You don't have to tell me you have issues. I, you can, but I, I already know you have issues. And I can tell you I have issues, and that's probably not going to surprise you either. But if you are a believer, something has happened. You have renounced ungodliness. That's part of how you became a Christian in the first place. You were out there. You were living for yourself. You were self-centered like everyone else. But God changed you, and he caused you to see that self-centered way of thinking is not beautiful, and it's awful and, and, and to hate it and to pursue Christ. And that right there is a miracle. Your salvation is a miracle. And so I know we can get so discouraged as we look at the bad things in this world and even sometimes in the church that we don't see how much God's done already. But if we just look at our own life, we have lots of evidence that God can do the impossible. And we don't want to we never want to lose that 
earnest desire to keep growing and keep changing. But at the same time, we don't want to be people who ignore or take for granted how much God already has changed us. We don't want to be like the people that are like sitting in the apartment overlooking the beach, the beautiful beach, and they're like complaining because it's like, see how sandy it gets in here all the time? You know, it's like, I can't believe all this sand. It's like, man, you're at the beach. Look at this. God has worked in our life. He has done amazing things in our life if we're a Christian. And it's important we remember that because it's God. And if he changed you like that, he can change you. What God, in his grace, did all that time ago, he's doing in you today. He's training you on a daily basis to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And if he can change you, he can change others. And he actually is. He is changing us so that we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The one who changed us by grace is committed to changing us, which should make us hopeful for the person who really is a believer. And that's the question. That's why that question is so important, right? And that's part of why we have local churches to help us. Is this person really a believer? Is this person really a believer? And if If they're not, don't write them off because God came to save all kinds of people. But until they're saved, be realistic because there's no real hope for change. So what do you do? You keep preaching the gospel. You keep preaching the gospel. You keep preaching the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And yet, if they are a Christian, you've got all kinds of hope. In fact, this is one of the main things we have hope for at Cornerstone when it comes to our future. Because there's a lot of stuff that we might have hope for that we don't have any promises in the Bible about. But this dream of helping believers live lives that makes the gospel look beautiful, we do have a promise. We have a promise that God himself is at work. And that should make us so hopeful because what God wants to happen, happens. And you know one thing that God really wants to happen in our lives? Spiritual growth. Look back. Look at what's happening. Look forward. That's third. Look forward. Paul says in in verse 13, that God's grace is training us to wait, to be people who are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you kind of have to catch here what Paul's doing, because Paul's been looking back at what happened. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. And then he calls us to look around at what is happening. The grace of God is, is training us. And now he shifts our attention to what is going to happen. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is going to return. The grace of God has appeared, and the glory of God is going to appear. Think about what the grace of God has done. Think about what the grace of God is doing. Think about what the grace of God is going to do. And this is important, this future perspective, because sometimes we get so focused on the difficult realities of people not changing as quickly as we would like that that's all we can see. And Paul's like, no, you have to look at these other realities, like the fact Jesus is coming again. Can you... I mean, can you imagine it? Because the way Paul describes it here, you see he talks about glory. He moves from grace to glory. And think about glory. Just think about the day when the glory of Jesus Christ is revealed. Because sure, we might have lots of questions about what Jesus can do now. We're looking around and we're like, can Jesus really do all this? But do you think there will be any question about what Jesus can and cannot do on that day when he appears in glory? 
No way. We'll be, we'll be in awe of his power. And as you think about his glory and his power, as it's going to be revealed on that day then, now, look at the people around you. The people that you wonder about. The believers you question whether or not they really can change. Because Paul tells us in verse 14, this, in fact, is why Jesus came in the first place. In other words, the Jesus who's going to appear in glory, this Jesus that we're waiting for, appeared in the past for the purpose of changing us as believers. That's verse 14. Paul says, he gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. In other words, Jesus came and died to thoroughly change us. And so when you wonder whether or not believers really can change, you have to understand, you're not wondering really whether people can change. We all know the answer to that. People can't change. That's not the question. The question is whether or not Jesus can change people. Because that's what he says he came and died for. Because as Paul talks about the grace of God in this passage, he's talking about Jesus. And that's why we have such confidence as believers that people truly can change. That's why we have this expectation. It's because we have confidence in Jesus. And we know that this Jesus who we're waiting for, who will appear in glory, gave himself to set sinners free from slavery to sin and transform them into people who are eager to obey, zealous. That's an attitude. So we look back when we're getting discouraged and we see he appeared bringing salvation for all people. And we look around when we're getting discouraged and we see he is training us to renounce ungodliness and to live sensibly in this present age. And we look forward when we're getting discouraged and we see there's a day coming when Jesus's victory will be made clear to the entire world. He will appear in glory and it will be obvious that he won that he came and that he died to accomplish something. And one day, we'll see he accomplished it. He accomplished it. He purified those people for himself. Do you believe it? Do we believe it? Because the truth is, it's not always easy to believe it when you're, when you're looking at people and their problems. Unbelievers really are dead. They don't change. And many people who call themselves believers are, in fact, unbelievers. And so they don't really change either. They just get more religious, maybe. And even for real believers, Paul tells us in other places, it's a war. It's a fight. And so sometimes as you go out there and try to help people, you get discouraged. And you start to wonder, honestly, can people change? What am I doing? What are we doing? Is the world right? Should we even expect change? And if we're not careful, that can kind of become our culture, actually. We don't stop totally believing in change, of course, but we slowly drift into a, a kind of hopelessness as a church, and we lose a sense of expectation and excitement about what the grace of God can do. And so we settle. We settle as we look at our own lives and we look at others. And you know what? 
it doesn't even seem like a problem because nobody really believes people can change anymore. And yet it is a problem as we're looking at people and we're wondering, can this kind of person change from ungodly to, to godly? That is a serious moment. Do you understand that? That is like a serious, heavy moment for you, for me, for us as a church. Because look, if we don't believe that, if we don't believe that God can change people, we don't really believe the gospel. And really, we have no reason to exist as a church. Because this is kind of why we're here. It's like the heart of the Great Commission, right? Go, Jesus says, and make disciples, followers. How? By proclaiming the gospel, seeing them converted, and identifying them with a local church, which we can summarize by saying, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching those who can naturally do it already to act more like Christians. Is that what Jesus says? Please, no, that's like heresy. Stand up. Oh, what are you saying? No, he doesn't say that. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, we're here to proclaim the gospel, start local churches, and help, help changed people change. And if we're going to do that, it starts with believing that God can do that. We need to be a hopeful church. And if we're going to be a hopeful church, if that's going to become our culture, what do we need to do? We need to be gripped the way Paul was with the significance of what God has done through Christ. What God is doing through Christ. And with what God is going to do through Christ. It's not, it's not a matter of just becoming more optimistic about people. It's not a matter of temperament. I'm just the kind of person that sticks in there and keeps trying. This is really a matter of doctrine. We fundamentally believe something happened in history. God acted. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all kinds of people. We believe God is supernaturally involved in individuals' lives teaching them to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And we believe that Jesus, who is glorious and powerful and we will one day see victorious, that he died to set people free from sin and to transform them into people who are zealous for good deeds. Does that mean it's going to be easy? Does that mean it's always going to work the way we want? No, of course not. Read Paul's life. But keep going. Be hopeful. And when you're not, look back and remember, who did Jesus come for? When you're not, look around and be grateful. And think about how God changed you and is changing you. And look forward and see Jesus in his glory. Can this Jesus finish what he started? He can. And he will. Let's pray. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Amen.